Hello, pod people. I'm DA. Just got my booster and the flu shot, so it's on in these streets. And welcome to Millennial Edition. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we are joined by a special millennial guest who will detail what life is like living with HIV. For the purposes of their protection, their name and voice will be changed. As always, remember to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter to be a part of the discussion. Okay, so let's dive right in. So as our listeners know, we like to start out with some definitions to ensure that we are all on the same page. So let's start out by defining HIV. HIV stands for the Human Immunodeficiency Virus. And what HIV does is attack the body's immune system, specifically the body's white blood cells. And this attack can lead to full-blown AIDS, which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. When a person has full-blown AIDS, it means that their entire immune system is damaged and unable to defend the body against infections. HIV and AIDS are terms that tend to be used interchangeably, but the best way to think about the difference between the two is that HIV is the virus and AIDS is the result of what that virus does to the body over time and or if not treated. So how does one contract HIV? As many of you already know, HIV is most commonly transmitted sexually, also from mother to baby or from a person's exposure to blood like transfusions or the sharing of needles. According to the data illustrated by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the first known reported case of AIDS was in 1981. So I wanted to bring in our guests to the conversation because the millennial generation is said to be those born between 1981, which was the start of the HIV and AIDS crisis, and 1996. What year were you born? So I was born in 1993. Were you born with HIV or did you contract the virus later in life? I was actually born with it. Can you talk a little bit about your parents and their status? So my mom passed away when I was four and my dad, I never had a chance to talk to him about it. And he passed when I was about 13, 14. So from the understanding of me asking my parents, I mean, my aunt and my the people that was taking care of me, they told me that she gave it to him and then he moved away. And then ultimately when she was pregnant, she had passed it to you? Yes. When you first learned that you were living with the virus, how was that explained to you and what went through your head? Okay, so when it was explained to me, I was about nine years old and they took me to a doctor's appointment like regular and the doctor explained it to me. But the doctor didn't really explain anything. They just asked me, do I know what it is? Of course, I said yes, because I knew what I heard in school. And they said, that's what you have. They explained a bare minimum of what I needed to know and left it alone. And just wanted to ask, did your mom end up dying from something that was AIDS related? I actually have no clue. Nobody's ever told me the story. And so as of today, how many years have you been living with the virus? 28. Do those within your community know that you are living with HIV? I have a few, a few people that know, probably like 10%. And obviously you don't share because of your safety. Is that correct? Correct. 
And then there's another thing that people don't even understand. It's like I compare it to cancer. It's like a living cancer. When you say that people don't really understand, what do you believe that they understand about the virus? So I feel like people think it's like like two two to three days ago I went to the bar with my with my job and it, we ended up making jokes about HIV and AIDS and the dude was saying some crazy stuff and I was just laughing with him and continued to joke along but he was saying something to the nature of we were taking uh, some type of weird test and at the job and he was like oh you gotta you have to I would love to know who has HIV working with me because I gotta know and in my mind I'm like there's no difference in knowing and not knowing because if you bleed on a table or if you get cut at your cubicle it's you still going to take the same safety precautions anybody else would and a lot of the issue comes from people think that it's a like like because you're near that person it's a nasty thing it's, it's something of the mind of it just something that society did and it, it's it's weird how it, how people learn when they learn about you it's weird how they treat you after that and i've physically felt that and we're gonna talk a little bit more about marginalization and discrimination later in the interview um but how did it make you feel sitting at the bar with you know obviously your coworkers and people that you trust and respect how did that moment make you feel well i feel it, it made me feel like I, I get to see in the eyes of people that don't understand a different perspective it's like i'm a it's like i'm a secret spy and i get to understand what people are thinking without them knowing what i'm thinking in real time because i'm agreeing i'm disagreeing i'm giving my my, my opinion but it happens actually quite frequently than than i than i would like it to but it happens and when it happens it's, it's a thing of understanding that hey at least i get to understand other people's viewpoint and that is one of the things that allows me to understand who and who i can't tell but it does make me feel and it makes me feel like it makes me feel like a superhero sometimes i'm not gonna lie like i don't know so a superhero it didn't make you feel bad no nah, not at all not at all it didn't make me feel bad at all what symptoms did you exhibit early on living with the virus and are those symptoms present today? Well, I think because of my my family's culture, we deal with a lot of herbs and things like that. Like I didn't really have a lot of symptoms. Like when it came down to like even when I was sick, I was only sick for two days. So it's it's like this reverse effect of I take such good care of myself that I'm actually getting healed faster because my body is fighting it a different way. It wants to fight it one way. I'm making my body fight it the other way and my body's reacting in the best manner. So when I got, I think I got sick, the last time I was sick was probably like right before coronavirus. And I actually think I had coronavirus before a lot of people had it. I was in the hospital for a long time. And that was the only time where I thought I was going to die ever getting sick. Before that, I never felt like I was, I never felt like I had HIV at all. So I wanted to provide our listeners with some more statistics. Between 1981, which was, as we mentioned, was the start of the crisis, and 2000, an estimated 774,467 people reported living with AIDS in the U.S., as confirmed by the CDC. Of that number, tragically, 448,060 people had died. It was in 1987 that an unknown treatment, AZT, which stands for acetophimidine, became the first successful treatment approved by the FDA in the treatment of HIV and AIDS. ACT was a treatment that was first introduced in the treatment of cancer, but scientists found that it was unsuccessful. However, lab tests found that AZT was able to suppress the ability of HIV to replicate cells without damaging them, making it the first antiretroviral treatment to combat HIV and AIDS. Since then, HIV and AIDS treatment has just gotten better and better. Reported by HIV.gov, today in the U.S., approximately 1.2 million people are living with HIV. 
2019, HIV.gov reported that only 15,815 people consisting of adults and adolescents died from the virus, which is a stark decline. In fact, all around the world, there has been a whopping 61% reduction in AIDS-related deaths, which is a testament to how far we have come as a society. How do you feel when you hear those statistics? Do you see yourself as having beat the odds? I actually do because I remember when I was a kid, I had to take a lot of medicine. And at that time, we were taking about three to four, three to five medicine. When I first started, I was taking about five. I used to go to school and hide the pills under my tongue and spit them out when I went to school. And then my, my aunt found out and I was like, okay. So she would make me drink it with coffee because I love coffee. And then I would throw it up because it was so many pills. So over time, it became like two, then one. So they won't give you one pill until they know that you're serious about getting healthy. That's one thing that they're serious about because it costs a lot of money. So they will not give you the one pill thing unless you request it or you, you act they're actually confident and you're actually taking this one pill a day because if you take it one, one time a day, you have more of a chance of the pill not working for you over time because of you missing, missing too many days. Do you believe that there will one day be a cure for HIV and AIDS? So that's why I have a problem. I feel like it should already came. I feel like they do because they actually have a shot where you can take to get your medicine and you only have to take it one time a month. So I feel like the, I feel like we will, but they make so much money off of, like the pills are expensive. The doctor is expensive. Like all of these things are expensive and none of us pay for it. We don't pay not one dime. We, all of us are paid by, the, they, they pay the government to have these centers to help us. So with that being said, I think it's so much going on with just the beneficial route. Like if you think about cancer, they figured out a way to get the cancer out your body. Now with this, it's a whole different ballgame. But if you think about coronavirus, they already have, they, they created four different vaccines, got it down to two, and they have vaccines within a year. But this pandemic, this is another pandemic that's been going on for way too long. And people forget that this was a pandemic and it's still going on. So I feel like they should have been had that, that. That should be at the forefront of the minds of the CDC right now, period. Because especially in different cities like in, uh, I forgot what, the, the Bay Area, Atlanta, these major metropolitan areas, it's, it's, it's rampant. It, it's, it's bad. Nobody's telling nobody anything. It, it's a scary world out here. Society isn't your friend. And people don't know how to handle. I, to me, HIV is a mental, is a, it's part of a mental disorder. It creates a mental disorder. It's a forced mental disorder that you have to create upon yourself. You don't know who to trust. You don't know who you can talk to. You can't be with just anybody. And if you're just a conniving person, you're going to lie. You're going to do whatever you want to do. You're going to live your life crazy because you don't know how to conduct yourself with this new thing, especially if you contracted it throughout your life and not been born with it. I was blessed to be born with it. So I had the understanding while I was growing up of what not to do. I was trained and raised in a way where when I learned what I had, I understood in full why I was being raised the way I was. But other people that get it through being through sexually transmitted or any other way, it's like, oh, well, how do I switch my lifestyle up from this to that? And that's the part that people aren't talking about. That's the mental disorder part. That's the mental part that takes the toll of our society that we're dealing with, the HIV. It's like, yo, I don't, I don't feel like I have anybody, even though there's everybody around me, but who can I trust? When you were growing up, did you have any heroes or did you know of any people that you looked up to who also had HIV or AIDS that helped you kind of navigate the virus? So when I was growing up, it was uh, Magic Johnson, of course. And Magic was one of those because when I was growing up, I, I seen what, what happened with his whole story. And I was like, OK, that's cool. But I didn't relate. So he wasn't necessarily a, a hero. So when I, while I was growing up, I didn't see anybody that I related to. So I pretty much was alone. 
it wasn't until it got probably till I was a little older and everything happened with Charlie Sheen that I had a whole different respect for myself. And I had like the kind of not not I don't care attitude, but that I can I can really be myself truly and fully. And it put it, he let me, he, I looked at, I, look, I looked at what he went through and I was like, wow, if this dude was going through this, I know I can surpass all of this crap. Like this is, that's not a challenge, but I, I, I didn't have anybody I can relate to in my world, honestly, to have a, somebody that I really look up to. That had to be really scary and isolating, especially, you know, I believe how our nation looked at and treated those with HIV and AIDS. Yeah, it was, it, it's like growing up, it was, it was more so I learned from everybody else around me. So what I wanted to do, I just picked, I picked a crew. If I wanted to learn something different, I'll pick another crew. I just didn't stick with one type of friend or one type of individual, or I didn't watch one type of TV or because I, it's not that I didn't feel like I related. I was trying to find something to relate to. But in, in interim, it created a different beast. It created the person I am today. And I understood that in order in order to understand yourself, you really have to like be with yourself. I never understood the purpose of me not relating to anybody until later. Once I understood it, I, I got comfortable with really being fully who I was and accepting everything that was me. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but tell me more about the types of discrimination and or marginalization that you've experienced because of your status. So I know it's a, f- a few times I told a few friends and it's just like the I think now they call it ghosting, but I call it excommunicado. They just dis- not even disappear like they see you. It's just they become cordial again. They become that cordial type of friend. And once it, it is this thing with with having somebody that you're cool with or having somebody that, you know, you talk to and even family members, sometimes like family members is just like, hey, I'm here. Like, you know what I got going on? I'm family and there's no avail. So a lot of the things that come with it is like and then with friends, it's like. Like, if somebody says the wrong thing about me, not not knowing, I just leave. I just excommunicate myself. Like, I just disappear because you don't you don't even have the right brain to even understand that your life could be like this, too. But they don't know what I'm going through. A lot of the times I, I, I lose people. It's me that dissipates because they said something wrong that I didn't agree with about my ailment and didn't even know my ailment yet. Because sometimes I do, you know, pick, pick the brain a little bit and I'll bring it up in a weird in a weird way. We might be smoking some, some, some joints and I'll just bring it up and hear what they got to say. And when somebody says something wrong, I'm like, dang, I'm, I'm out of here. What are your biggest fears as a millennial living with HIV? Not having a spouse. So with with this day and age, people, a lot of people's mentality are so stuck on whatever they believe. And like a lot of times I pose the question, what if what you were taught was totally wrong? Like what if you believe is totally incorrect and whatever you just said is not even what you really think? Because for me, it's like, all right, I know what I have going on and I have been in a relationship where everything was transparent. We knew everything and it still came to no avail. So why try to do that again and gain the trust of somebody again and tell somebody my whole business and do all of this? At this point, I'd rather just do me. And that's the scary part where now I've gotten to the point where I'd rather be by myself than be with somebody else and have to go through all of the crap that I went through. Do you believe that the relationship you mentioned ended because of your status or did it end because just of normal, you know, day to day dating? Because, you know, dating could be a little difficult in this modern era. What do you think ended that relationship? I believe that was, I believe my status was probably 55 to 45% of the issue. Because mentally, for me, it takes probably 60% of the total of the relationship. 
I'm worried half the time about what the other person's worried about about my status. And then when I end up having talks and or we have arguments or we have discussions, that comes up majority of the time. So I know that thought is to be true. And a lot of the times the with relationships, the question of the chi- of of us having a child, how it's supposed to happen, what are we gonna do? All of that comes into play, and everything is natural. Everything's the same. There's a few different precautions, probably taking some pills, and that's it. That's different. But going through the the actual emotion of this of of, of a relationship and the the spouse, I feel like it takes more of a toll on the spouse that doesn't have HIV than me. It's more so of being just scared and a lot of fear and a little bit of wanting to know more and not not being able to fully understand it all. And just for our listeners, HIV is not always transmitted from mother to baby. There have been many people who have had HIV and have had, you know, gotten pregnant, had babies and did not pass it to a child or a spouse. So I just kind of want to always drop that knowledge and facts and truth that those with HIV and AIDS have lived very healthy lives as the person that we are speaking to today. And I just want to kind of throw that out there as well. I wanted to say that uh, actually at the hospital that I go to, it's actually two people that met at the hospital and they had a child that didn't have HIV and it was the dopest thing that I've ever seen. Exactly that. You know, unfortunately, when you were born, that was not an option. And now, obviously, with medical miracles, that is now an option. So, you know, we don't have to worry about that piece much anymore. And it's important that our listeners and everyone knows that, that they can lead healthy relational lives as the person that we're speaking to today. What are your greatest hopes? Well, okay, so I've been doing a lot of soul searching and my greatest hope is in the next two years, I want to make a million dollars. Now, like I said, I've been dealing with this for 28 years. So then I'll be dealing with this for 30 by then. Now, with the money that I'd have with this million dollars, I will most definitely take $10,000 and put it to the side for the venture of really making basically a, I'm going to be making a, a vlog slash documentary. It's not going to get put out till way later. The thing I want to do is I want to show people that the lifestyle, this lifestyle is not one of the scariest lifestyles to live. Like, I'm more afraid of getting coronavirus than cancer or HIV or having HIV. And the reason I say that is because I feel like there's such there's this fear about HIV. And I feel like if we learned and knew enough, people would protect themselves in a, in a more protective way. The way people are protecting themselves is counterproductive. Like the trust of an individual. I'm not going to say it's not to be trusted, but there's different things that you have to do to understand the person that you're with. I want to do this in actual practice and show people this in real time. And I want people to understand that. I want to be the, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but I want to be the Magic Johnson to the digital world, basically. And show people that you can do, you can, you can live this life because it's a lot, it's a lot of people like me that are, that, that, that are really scared to even, not necessarily tell their story, but to tell anyone. Like I know people now that haven't told, a, that hasn't told a soul and they're just living with this and they're angry. They're angry at people, they're mad at people and it, it, it's taken, it's taking a toll on them. But it'll be it'll also be for the people that don't understand, not, not necessarily for the people that understand and want to get the story out more. You'll have more people talk to and understand what's really going on. So that's one of the things that I really want to do personally, because I don't feel like donating to any fund. I don't feel like that does anything for us at all. You mentioned it um, when you were answering that question that obviously right now we are in a deadly pandemic that has since last year claimed the lives of 700,000 people in this nation. So in one year, the coronavirus has claimed as equal to the amount of lives that HIV and AIDS have claimed between the years of 1981 and 1996. What do you do to protect yourself during this pandemic? 
So what I do is I just make sure I stay well hydrated. I take a lot of herbs. I do smoke a lot of weed and I eat a lot of edibles and I make sure I take my medicine and that's it. The reason being is because I feel like if I do anything outside of the norm, I'm going to mess myself up. And then there's other things that isn't being accounted for with the people that have any type of issues with their immune system. When, like, I had a job where they told us to get the coronavirus shot. And I told them, I'm, I, ref- I refuse. I'll just quit and I'll just leave. And they told me, okay, you just have to get the test. We're going to have the lady take the test every week. That's fine. I'll do that. But I feel like it's, it's, it's a lot of things that I, I do on a natural that helps my body better than a pill can ever do. And no one can take that from me. Did you refuse the vaccination because your immune system will not, unfortunately, be able to sustain vaccines? No, I didn't. I didn't take the vaccine because my doctor didn't push it. My doctor actually not necessarily doesn't agree, but doesn't believe that there's enough information for the different demographics that are out there. She didn't even say the HIV world or anybody with cancer or anybody with low immune systems. Just the fact that we don't have enough information in, in the in the first place for the different people that like there's people with diabetes. It's, you don't know how that's going to react. I, I just she said she said a few things that made me think and I already didn't want to take it. So it just confirmed my other reasons I didn't want to take it. What do you think is unique about being a millennial living with HIV in comparison to the other generations living with HIV and AIDS? Well, like before I said, uh, I feel like it's a superpower. It's it's one of those things where it's the car, it's the it's the it's the hand that you don't want in spades. It's it's the hand you end up being the partner in and winning the, the the game with. So a lot of my story, my story is my currency. Nothing, nothing else overrides. Money doesn't override. Weed doesn't override. And a job can never override my story. When it comes down to being a millennial with HIV and as well being born with it. I have a I have a way that I can talk to people, I can relate to anyone and I can understand different people's pain points in a in a, in a whole different way. I can re- I can really feel what people are saying. And when people have that ability to be earthly to another human, that's what changes the world. If I can be the person to portray that individual, it'll change one individual, which will change another individual. I feel like that is the thing that differentiates us as a, anybody with HIV as a millennial. That, that's the superpower that we have. We really relate to everyone else's pain point because they don't, they, once they, if they ever find out our pain point, they will understand, OMG, my life isn't that bad. What do you ultimately want people to know about living with HIV? Well, I want people to know that we're human, just like anybody else. And that it's not a death sentence. There's other people around. There's people that you don't know that have it, that if you were more, I would say, more human, if you just brought yourself down to earth a little bit, you would learn about the different people that are around you. And I w- what I really want to say is that it's not a death sentence. That's it. Like, it, a lot of people think that life is over if you ever find out you have this, or life is over, or you can't achieve the things you want to do. You can't, like certain jobs you can't do. Like you want to cook, you can't cook. You can cook, you can do whatever you want to do. There's nothing stopping you. There's nothing holding you back. We are regular, we are awesome, and we are amazing. This is everyone else's. And I really want people that don't have it to be more susceptible of understanding the ins and outs. Because that's where people get the whole thing misconstrued. Like I said before, it's like it's like a living cancer. You can't we can't do anything about it. We can't get it out of us. We can't choose anything. We didn't choose the if if you did get it sexually, you didn't choose to not know for the other person to not tell you that I have it. And you mess around and you end up getting it. And now you're scared to tell the is this revolving door that if somebody just opens it, we'll be okay. But in the end of the day, we're okay anyway. Just go for your dreams at the end of the day.
Thank you so much for being brave and sharing your story with us today. We are very honored to speak with you and learn more about those in society living with HIV and AIDS. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us for this episode of Millennial Edition. If you haven't already, get faxed, get your flu shot, and I look forward to engaging with you all soon.